When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. We got a very special visit from Dr. Ron today. We do kind of a Sunday brunch thing, and for a small price, he regales his wisdom. It's been a clean season, so we got to bring in little Ronnie to fuck it up a little bit. Am I supposed to crack it or wait? Yeah, Okay, Ron's got his his payment for payment his- hard cider. <laughs> the payments for my wisdom, not my. I'd visit for free. My yeah. wisdom costs a hard cider. <laughs> Got Reflections by Jerry Garcia, sealed eight track today. and um, He just busted it out. Yep. I was going to let you open it. Sorry. I haven't held an eight track since 1983. <laughs> so The eight track's legacy was that when we were both relatively young, I mean, you would just see the strewn tape on the side of the highway. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Seemed like you had Europe seventy two and some Bob Dylan, so you got the yeah. you got the eight track collection that everyone I know would die for. That's they love each other, by the way. I can usually name a tune in three notes. Okay. Try this one. Ready? Okay. Mighty swell, mighty swell. Mighty swell mighty Only saw this one time out of fifty three shows. Alright. My first Doobie's Pet World boss after Mr. Doobie had an amazing music love and music collection and his thing which I'm sure you are aware of but I don't know if you have ever experienced was reel to reel and it took work you couldn't just get up and flip an album or plug in a tape you had to take out the other reel and reel it back and put it away and then it was kind of like threading a movie at a theater it's a lost art it's a lost art but when he invited us doobies pet world high school kids over we did not doubt that it sounded 10 times better in 1966 there was a ford fleet of cars that came out and they had the first eight track players in them so 
if that hadn't have happened, if Ford hadn't have outfitted the cars with 8-track players, the 8-track player wouldn't have taken off because the tapes wouldn't have been of any great value to anyone. So they, they outfitted the car, the tape takes off. Why? Because it's the first time anybody's ever been able to listen to their music in their fucking car. Well, that's... Can you imagine that? I tell people, there was three TV stations, but you might live in a neighborhood where you're up on the top of the hill and you get all three of them and you go to the bottom of the hill and they only got NBC. It's oh, so yeah. like the idea of choice cable TV, you know, watching what you want. It was like Gilligan's Island rerun or, or Guiding Light. That was our afternoon choice. And the world was probably not that much better for it sometimes. Well, we spent more time climbing trees. Yeah, that's true. Outside. In the Spotify world, you know, it's impossible to even imagine the revolution that 8-tracks would have been. Sure. You know, that you would actually be able to take a girl in your car up to the lookout lane or whatever. And put on tonight's the night. <laughs> Gonna be alright. That was a big make-out song when I was in ninth grade, maybe. God, did you suffer through, like, an awkward make-out lane thing? It's called lookout lane or make-out? Lookout make out? lane, make-out lane, yeah. parking. You yeah, know, yeah. No, I didn't get to, I didn't have those options. <laughs> It's wildly liberating for me to be able to buy tapes for like a dollar. Oh, sure. That everybody else has, has deigned, you know, garbage. Yeah. Like, that's like the punk spirit of like thrift shops, which have largely gone away. Oh, I know. And when I go into the thrift shop now, CDs are a dollar. Yeah. And CDs are the new cassette. CDs are the new cassette. But, you know, there's even a cheaper CD store on Franklin Street. Between Med Deli and Al's Burger Shack. Yeah, otherwise known as the dump. Yeah, but I mean, I have coworkers that say you can go and you can get 10 CDs for $5. I think that's a beautiful thing. I you do know? too. The only problem with it, with my logic when I say that, is that the people who made them aren't getting paid for us no, buying them. No, that, that's yeah. a sad thing, and I'm sure as a musician that hurts you more. Well, I just never really thought about it because... The collector mindset is all about getting the original. I sure. personally like reissues, which yeah. actually does support the maker of the music, usually, if, if the label has sought them out. But yeah. I also think that reissues sound really good most of the time, but, but collectors want to buy the original thing, which ironically does not support the artist, right. which is bizarre, yeah. right? I guess I'm about to reveal to you what may arouse you. Bob Dylan's in your back room? Very close. No. I got the entire Bob Dylan discography on 8-track. Which is hard to believe. I can't believe it. I don't even think Bob Dylan has his entire discography. Well, you don't have them in order, but you have almost every one. You got Slow Train coming, even. Yeah, isn't that impressive? So you get me through high school. Yep. My favorite right now is like New Morning and, and Pat Garrett because I feel like by that time the world has largely left him alone. Well, they had. Um, Pat Garrett's hard to take, but I do love New Morning. You mean just because, what, because it's knocking on Heaven's Door? Or you think it's well, too meandering? It's too meandering. That's what I like about it because if you, if you got high on a Sunday, you might learn to love it. Well, I, I would try, but it's, it's like I'm looking at New Morning and... There is not probably a song on here that a casual Dylan person knows. No, except that the It Takes a Woman Like You, is that what it's called? 
It's not called that. <laughs> New Morning I like just because he sounds... Look at him. He sounds so comfortable. Yeah. He doesn't care anymore. He's happy. I love that. Yeah. Reflections Jerry Garcia also has that quality of like, I'm doing yeah. what I want to do. Right, exactly. And Re Reflections was not made to make money. I don't know the story and behind it. It Well, I mean, Jerry wanted to work more than the other people in the band. Now, my flaw with Jerry is he wasn't the best parent. He was non-existent or something? Well, he was absent and negligent and, you know, it was a cool concept, but he wasn't going to your volleyball game. So, you know, Mickey Hart's like, I'm going to buy a ranch and turn a barn into a studio and Kreutzmann's like what did I want to do when I was a poor kid snorkeling and deep sea diving and it was like the other ones did what more people would do once you got wealthy once you got wealthy where Jerry was like well now I want to have a bluegrass band and a soul band and a you know so that was he his want, dream of that was his dream was just yeah. keep working and do you take a, a little break when Dylan goes Christian or you don't waver it was funny. I mean, I was a senior in high school. I think people liked it, but there was no, there hadn't been Jerry Falwell yet. You know, there right. had been Jimmy Carter was a Christian. It was not. Um, it wasn't like it a wasn't Christian like a right wing. Was a right movement. wing thing. It was like even Bob Dylan needs help. Even Bob Dylan is searching mm -hmm. and doesn't have the answers. It's like it took a long time, but he he found the answer, and then, like so many of us, answers for 1980 don't work so well in 2015. Right, right. To be an artist, you're supposed to be taking this pact with like spiritual freedom. Right. And one thing I love about Bob Dylan is that not only did he take the pact and try to follow it wherever it would lead him, but he did it under a microscope in sure. front of the world and the yeah. world wanted him to be so many different things and so Bob Dylan being somewhat of a punk is going to basically contradict them sure. you know because he's going to find God in unlikely places and so at some point he finds it in the conventional yeah. place and that's very like him to follow himself and not them but it's also indicative of real searching that you decide you may have gone down the wrong alley and right, turned yeah. back around, you know? Exactly. All right, so it looks like, from what I've got here, I issued the interview with you, and what we've come away with is you got a little bit of fan mail. No. Mm-hmm. You're kidding. <laughs> so, for example, one question is, how did psychedelics influence Ron's music taste. I kind of know that from some of the stuff you told me, but maybe I edited out some of the your original, uh, what do they call that? Your origin tale. Yeah. One thing I edited out because of time was that I didn't go into the fair exchange. Oh. And I find the idea of the fair exchange really fascinating because, you know, after you left my house, I located a memory of going in there buying records when I was a kid. Which is so funny to me, because that's where I first saw Tangerine Dream, which at the time would have literally been the most uncool music on the planet. Sure. But now is the coolest cool. music yeah. in the world. 
So I used to go in there because I just had a very cursory understanding of what a record was. I So I must have been eight or something. But I remember it being pretty dingy and, like, dark. That's how I remember it. I don't know if that's true, but it was definitely cheap. I thought you said he was a guru to you. He was a guru yeah. to me, but okay, he okay. said, you've bought this, this, and this. Listen to this. Right. You've done this. Do this. Right. So how, how young were you when you started going in there? 16. Okay, and you told me that the Fair Exchange record store in some way led you towards LSD. Yeah. Because it got you into, was the Prague Records? Prague Records and giving the dad a chance after I thought they were washed up, things like that. The guy actually told you, checked out this dead record. He said, you should go see the dead. And I'm like, they're old, I go see Rush. And he said, you should go see the dead. He tried to get me going in 81, 82. Okay, so it took you a while. Took me a while. Well, that shit was on MTV and stuff. Well, I didn't have MTV. Touch of Grey didn't come out till 87. I know, but it wasn't cool at that moment. It wasn't cool. I have this memory. In spring of 1980, the dead was playing at the Greensburg Coliseum. And I was going to the Vizart with my friend. And there were people camped out. 24 hours in advance and we walked by and we said look at these washed up old fools living in nostalgia hey maybe the Beatles will open you know we mocked them for being in line for the Grateful Dead in 1980 because they were the 60s and Rush was the 70s we were almost like Pink Floyd is old so to answer this young man's question though yes when you're staring at these prog records, can you remember what told you to go try LSD? What would, How did you get your initial curiosity? Well, that's really interesting because the thing that most did it was an older woman that worked at Doobie's Pet World. <laughs> now, get this. She named her daughter Johanna after visions of Johanna. And she knew I loved music, and she, and she said things like, loosen up, try these things. The way that the music opens your mind, these substances might open your mind. I just cannot imagine what it would have been like if I had experienced those things in the late 70s instead of 84. Do you know the um, Triple Live 72, yes album yes shows it's three records which mm -hmm. in those days records were big and it was expensive i found it at the fair exchange but it's like close to the edge is a whole side roundabout is a whole side wow. you know each side is a song or two and i could go and listen to this journey and you know i just think wow but i was doing it in black and white and then when i experienced the acid it was did that woman give you your first dose? She told me how to get it. She had a friend come see me. Yeah. You never dabbled in that cocaine like pepper scene much. No, I um I did cocaine one time because I had been led to believe that it was like a seduction drug and if you gave someone oh, cocaine, yeah. they do they'd have sex with you. And then I was like, "Wow, I could have had a dinner, five albums." and a bag of pot and still have money left over for that stupid hour. <laughs> we didn't really answer how did psychedelics influence your music taste, 
Well, psychedelics, they made me go back and appreciate. I mean, seriously, I bought things like Tangerine Dream because the Fair Exchange guy said this is cool. But it's one thing to listen to five or ten minutes of Phaedra. It's another thing to two in the morning have the candles burning low and impress your friends by pulling out this crazy 40-minute symphony. And yeah. I'd, I'd say those those 72 to 76 Tangerine Dreams were each side, and it's just one piece. I mean, that music isn't even applicable to being sober. Yeah, it's not even applicable, but, but those people that were in that situation went out and bought Tangerine Dream albums, you know? Right, right. You're much more likely to get someone to listen to Tangerine Dream after not a trippin' than popping into the 8-track in when you're heading down to the slip-in gyms for some beef jerky. <laughs> Or whatever teenagers do when they run to the that quote is going to be on store. your uh, tombstone. Okay. Here's a question a lot of people have been asking me. I I think they're very genuinely curious. They want to know if you've seen Dead and Company. And obviously, as a side question, a couple people have asked how you feel about John Mayer being. Uh, integrated, but they they want to know what you think of the more modern incarnations okay. of the dead. Okay. So, I'm very excitedly going to see Dead and Company again on Friday in Charlotte. And after last summer's Raleigh show, I've sort of kicked myself for not going more. But it's a two-way street. I went to lots of the other one, The Dead, shows, and there was something kind of missing. And now it's kind of like Bob Weir is old and gray. He's significantly older than Jerry was in 95. And so it used to hurt me when Bob would sing those Jerry songs about being a wise old man, but I'm like, well, now Bob is kind of a wise old man. And John Mayer, you know, I think as a person, you know, I've read some stuff that suggests that he's kind of a jerk. But you know what? Jerry's kids said that Jerry was kind of a jerk at his funeral. And, you know, I don't. Bob Dylan was kind of a jerk. But, you know, John Mayer came to hear the dead as a rich man. He hears the song Althea. He appreciates it. John Mayer came to the dead as an older, fully formed music fan the same way I did. And he really loves it. And I can do the math. He's not in it for the money. It's not helping him sell his new album. You know, so he's actually enjoying it. Dylan's songs and the dead songs, the Beatles songs... Those are the closest to things that might be the Mozarts and the Beethovens. It also reminds me of like a kind of church. And I know that's yeah, a little church. weird. Yeah, but yeah. like it's a communal thing. And they're getting together and they're playing like these holy pieces. Holy of music. pieces. Yeah. I went last year after not going resisting. I'm like, it is right here in Raleigh. My friend who I've been going to concerts with since 91 wants to go let me go we get there the people to our right are in their 70s 
I'm in my 50s. The people to our left are in their 20s. The people in front of us have teenage kids. It's like I looked around. Every demographic was there. And they were all into it. And they all knew 90% of the songs very well. And, you know, anyone can go to a show and there's a song they're not super familiar with. But it was like, this is like church. But so you were skeptical at first when they first started up and John Mayer plugged in. Were you pretty much instantly like, this is just the same old thing. I'm at home. Or did it take you a second to get settled? It took me a second, but I was more ready for it. Early on, I was like, oh, they're not catching the spirit of it. But now, as crazy as this sounds, it's like Bob is Jerry and John Mayer is Bob. John Mayer is the kid. On certain songs, Althea, Deal, John Mayer rips. But on the poignant ones, that it used to hurt me to hear anyone but Jerry sing. Like, you know, um, Standing on the Moon, um, Morning Dew, Stella Blue, Warfrath. The slow ballads towards the end of the show when it was dark, where I needed Jerry's weak, vulnerable voice. Mm Mm-hmm. Well, Bob Weir's weak and vulnerable now, <laughs> and he's got the flowing gray hair, and he doesn't phrase it, which I it used to make me mad, but now I'm like, that's what I want. I don't want him to try to be Jerry. Right. I want him to sing the song that Jerry used to sing, but he's got to sing it his way. So around now, Ron and I start talking about the Pink Floyd show that we went to and the eight hits of acid and all these things and unexpectedly he kind of gets into the story because Ron likes to tell a good story basically he's revealing that his relationship with the ecstasy damaged chef is a lot more complicated than I had ever known you may remember he was trying to pull his head off at the top of the bleachers at the Pink Floyd show and I thought he was entertaining but I just I didn't understand about these other layers of his life. I tell the story of when we went to see Pink Floyd, you know. That was at Carter Finley. Oh, that was awesome. I remember that one very vividly. (laughs) My telling of the story was pretty simplistic. I stopped the story basically after explaining that the show was kind of a therapeutic thing for rednecks. Yeah, it was. It was. I mean, it was a production. Although I appreciated it, I would say that show compared to what they did from 68 to 78, there's no comparison. Yeah. That was a, there's a big market for this. We'll put out a new record. We'll sell the new record. We'll sell shirts. And we'll play some of those old songs, too. One of the weirdest parts of the whole night was after it was over. We'd been experiencing this, whatever, three-hour-long, you know, yes. journey. Yes, And I don't know how much you remember we took, but as far as I remember, I was on at least eight hits. Oh, as far as I remember, I stayed up all night and listened to old Pink Floyd afterwards. Wouldn't you say that was probably the most acid we ever took that night? There have been a few concerts in my life where I said, where you want to see the dragon. <laughs> and... I saw the dragon and rode him. The dragon kind of trampled old who he is one of those people that 
Although I know hundreds of people that knew him, no one knows where he is. Internet searches have not helped. That's sad you say that because I said on the podcast that um, every Christmas party we'd have at the restaurant, he'd often get so drunk he'd threaten to kill himself. Oh. Do you remember that? I forgot about that. He was tragic. I don't know if I should tell this. This is a really funny, sad story. But I got into the dead, and then it was hard to see the dead. Finally, I'm getting to see them, 89, 90. And in 91, they were playing in Charlotte. And no one I knew was willing to go and make the drive. So he says, hey, let's go. And Before you knew how ecstasy damaged he was. Right. But so anyway, so what happens is his grandmother died the night or two before the show. And he says, I can pick him up at the Hardee's in Mount Olive, North Carolina, and we can still go to the show. And I'd already bought tickets. I was going to the show. So I go pick this guy up who's just been to his grandmother's funeral, and we drive to Charlotte. And I used to have the shirt, but it is June of 91. It's a great show, actually. July of 91, he's getting married. His fiancée is a cashier. He's a cook. I pick him up. We're driving. And by half an hour in, you know, and he's a big puffer. And half an hour in, we've puffed. And he's talking about life and being around his family and the death of his grandma and how he's getting married and how that there's parts of people that they just can't show each other. I call it foreshadowing. But so we have this very strange hour and a half conversation from Mount Olive to Charlotte about these things. We get there, I buy two cool shirts, we go in, they open with Ico Ico. It's a great show. And then we're going to drive back to Carborough to the apartment he shares with his fiance. And they've been together for five years. So we're going along, and well, to make a long story short, we get out of charlotte area and you're on i-85 heading north on a wednesday night there's no traffic and somewhere between charlotte and greensboro he's taking my pants off as i'm driving so i had a very awkward and scary and thank goodness i wasn't tripping but we'd smoked a lot he had alluded to on the way there how some people were more complex and open and he didn't understand how people had issues with me because he understood how people did everything and I didn't realize he was setting me up but you know I'd never before or since done anything except in a bedroom in a house where there was nobody else so on a car on the interstate I was not expecting it I did not plan it I did not ask for it so I'm like shocked and then we pull into the apartment complex and at this point it's 2.33 in the morning and he says well don't I get a turn and he made me drive to where I lived at the time and so needless to say I didn't go to their wedding 
which everyone's like, why didn't you go to their wedding? And I said, trust me, I had reasons. I avoided him for a long, long period of time. And then, at that point, he's married. Why don't you come over? I got some weed for you. And then my price of getting free weed was, you know, it's like, what a weird dude. He was kind of pushy. About he was pushy, but he was also... And bored, it sounds like. And bored. Yeah. And it turned out that as the years went by, after he was gone, three different people when I'm hanging out with them late at night, we're talking and like one guy, he was like your macho, macho man. There was a motorcycle riding regular. And he said, so one day I'm going over to his house and I see his motorcycle. So I just went around the back door cause they are usually out on the back porch smoking. Cause they didn't smoke inside cause his wife didn't approve of him smoking. So the guy goes around the back door and they're not out smoking, and he goes into the living room, and they're in the middle of the living room doing it. Who and who? The motorcycle guy. Uh. But so, and then another dude, one time me and him are out late one night, and he says, it's the strangest thing. And I said, what? Well, you know, me and we're the line team on Saturday and Sunday morning, and I know he's happily married, but I swear he's hitting on me. And I'm thinking to myself... Yes, he is. But his marriage didn't end because he got caught with one of the fellows he was sleeping with, which I later discovered there was three or four of us. He got caught with a young waitress. But the point being, like, there was about a four-year period where I thought I was like his true confidant. And he had this little dark secret that only I and him were dealing with, you know. And then once they're divorced, Swerves tells me, oh, yeah, we go put the laundry in and then we go have sex and then we go put it in the dryer. And I'm like, oh, my God. You know, he's portraying it to me like he has this little side of him and this curiosity. And then he's that does make me wonder where he is and if he's okay. That makes me wonder where he is and if he's okay. Yeah. Like, oh, I've searched him. You've looked around and tried and tried and tried to find him. I mean, and again, he was. Let's just say that every time he wanted to do more. You know, he was not he was not a dabbler. He was full-blown into it. I know this might sound a little grandiose, but he had a dash of Axl Rose about him. Like, there was something about him, like, yeah, stepping well, no, off the bus. I can see it, because, look, all those people liked him. Like, he was him, trashy, you know? but he was smart. Yeah, he was... He, I don't know. Again, he was smart. He had... Look, I enjoyed hanging. It was always a dilemma for me. Why do you think you even considered the morality aspect of the of the situation or what what about it gave you pause? Well, I think I think at that time still I I didn't understand how varied people were. And so I'm sitting there thinking, "My god, if this guy wants to do this with me, he's really just suppressing himself." and he shouldn't get married. Now, he shouldn't have got married because he wasn't honest, 
but he wasn't suppressing himself. He was much more open and active than I can imagine being. You know, you only saw a portion of him, even if you thought you knew him, is what I realized. I remember him having a really bad temper. Well, he did have a bad temper. He's the one that named me Fuckwaste. He never gave me a nickname like that. Yeah, I could see why you wouldn't like him. No, I didn't say I didn't like him. Oh. I thought it was funny, but he seemed dangerous. I remember thinking... Well, I, in my research, had I discovered that he was in central prison, I wouldn't have been shocked. Right. No, he was capable of... Well, I, I think that Pink Floyd concert that... Well, he was trying to pull his head off at the top of the bleachers. You remember that? And he, we thought he was going to jump off. Oh, we, I do. Now that you said that, yeah, you're right. I think you're right. I think I stayed with him. Well, I remember he kind of came down and he almost acted like, oh, that's a place I, I've gone many times. This place where I, I don't know my own identity yeah. and I just go mad and then I come back to work and everything's fine. That's a funny side of him that he named me fuckwaste because I definitively remember he thought he was better than everybody else. Oh, he did. Maybe because he really was really smart, you know, and he was beyond maybe the kind of banal, boring, kind of beige aspect of these small town idiots in his mind. I don't yeah. know. I kind of remember maybe there was a, a car wreck. Yes, there was. Man, you remember more than I do. I'm good. Yeah. The end of the Floyd show. Right. They end, and suddenly your brain which has been obliterated, but right. has had this intense focal point. Right, yeah, music and lights. Yeah, it dissolves and the lights come on, and now you're just in the middle of how many thousands of people? Right. How many yeah. How many people do you think were there? 45 to 60. And suddenly, all those people need to walk in the same direction, right. and it's actually terrifying. Oh, it is. It's horrible. You're still on eight hits of acid. Yeah. You're probably peaking. You hit your peak, but you're still there for a while. And then so we, we discern where the exit is because just the flow of people is like Tony right, yeah. Astasi yeah. or like Baraka, right? Yeah. It's like it's just like this animalistic motion that you get caught up in. I had been to that stadium before, and I'd seen a lot of football games. I knew the layout of the stadium. I mean, I know you guys probably, you probably don't watch much NC State football. But still, like you said, I mean, that's a good thought. I hadn't thought about that quite concisely. Like, suddenly, the 45,000 people that you don't have to notice, because mm -hmm. you're all looking at the lights and listening to the music, suddenly those sweaty rednecks are trying to leave, too. One of my memories is we're trying to cut across towards the parking lots right. and eventually out to the streets where we're going to have to go find our car. Off to our right, there was a different current of people. You know, they're kind of cutting straight through this mass of about 40,000 people. They're a small group cutting straight through the side, which didn't seem possible, but they appeared to me to be old people that were very angry. Like They were probably the cleanup crew that had to go and start sweeping up. They almost seemed like they had lawn chairs and they had been sitting outside well again that could have been the cleanup crew they could have also been the people that lived on the perimeter because those people were pretty weird those were the people that were selling the balloons oh 
But they seemed angry like they had night sticks. In my mind, I saw them have weapons. Well, I don't remember anybody having weapons, but I might not have been noticing. Well, do you remember how fucked up you were at the end? Do you have yes, any memory of it? I do. But, I mean, I was feeling some mother hen thoughts. Ooh. I was like, let's keep us together. Let's find the car. Let's not do anything stupid. Mm-hmm. After that, I had one of your classic sort of young experiences where you go in the gas station. And it's just like literally time moved so incredibly slowly. Like it was just so purely silent. And I remember just the amount of time it took to reach in my pocket and get my wallet and pull it out onto the table was it was an infinity I opened up my wallet and literally just the money just poured out. Yeah, everywhere. Yeah. Just change, you know, just go rolling. <laughs> because I saw my hands and they were all these colors, like they, they were purple. And I was kind of like mesmerized with them. And then my wallet just falls. And the guy is just looking at me like, I'm such a I'm loser. I'm sick of these dumb drunks, yeah, is what right. he's thinking. Okay, so before we move on to the last question I can think of. I tried to collect all the most difficult parts of my life from that era into yeah. one, so I would kind of compartmentalize it, sort of have to deal with it in one go, and then not not have to go back to it. It was that summer of 95 when things sort of just fell apart. And so when I got into the story, all I really was planning on going towards was when that drifter guy broke a guitar over my head, which you probably don't remember very well. Now that you say that, I do remember that you've had a guitar broken over your head. <laughs> That's a legendary moment. If it wasn't Pete Townsend, though, there's nothing to be proud of. <laughs> yeah, not many people know what it's like to have 17 staples in your head. I realize... 17? Ooh. Yeah. What kind of guitar was it? A Strat? I was thinking no, it was like a, a classical acoustic. guitar. How'd it do so much damage? He hit it me a few times. Oh. But he also... And what me. had you done? What? <laughs> So when I go into the episode, I'm really just thinking, because you have to have a plan. You know, I'm really just thinking that I wanted to get into that, into the grisly emotional background of that year, you know. And I inadvertently, you know, memories just come back to you out of nowhere. And when you start telling a story, it's almost like you can retrieve entire dimensions that you just have never verbalized. All of a sudden, it comes back to me, all this stuff about my friend that flipped out on acid and became schizophrenic. And I don't know if you know this, but he actually, he became essentially developmentally disabled and started bagging groceries at Harris Teeter and stuff. Ooh. Lithium, whole thing, hospitalized. Uh, you missed that. Yeah, I hadn't thought much about him. And actually, now that you said I see his face, I, I did, you know, I've stayed right here. I did see him a time or two where I realized, oh, wow, he's beefed up and not in a good way. Do you remember seeing his eyes, like how he was kind of lost and he didn't know if he knew you? Do you remember that? Yes. Over the years, I've been blamed for some things and had parent calls and, oh, they love to get the answering machine. They could say things they wouldn't say to your face, but one kid talked to him once some ladies calling me blaming me for whatever it was drugs or gayness 
I'd like to leave a message for Emo that contrary to what he's uh, told other people, we do have a sex. We're not all asexual. And uh, that he shouldn't necessarily grab people by the shoulders against their will and stare into their eyes and tell them we're all asexual and offer them money for sexual favors. Offer them to get high for sexual favors. If you have something to say, give me a call back. Thanks. So when I moved down here, I, I had to clean this house. This so, house. yeah, that back room was just full of all my kindergarten stuff. I'm going through all these piles of photos and things, and I mean, there's stuff in there that is definitely very trippy. But somewhere, you know, in the third day of leafing through this stuff, I find this fucking rape pamphlet. What? It was like this foggy memory that... I thought was real and I told it in the podcast thinking that it was probably real because I have the memory. Where did I get the memory? I I wasn't totally sure that this had happened, but I had this memory that he came to you because he was going to blame you for some sort of corruption. Yeah. Oh, I remember this now too. Yeah. Yeah. And my memory was that he showed up at the family restaurant and he asked you to come outside with him. Yeah. This is how I remember it. Because I wasn't there. You're right. And he gave you the rape pamphlets. That's the way I remember it. It's like you didn't even know what he was trying to say. And you came to me and you were just confused. Yeah. And you were like, I think your friend might actually have some serious problems. And I don't think I ever even would trip with him. I think I smoked with him a time or two. Yeah. But, yeah, but that's no, I never I never spent no 10 hours with him chasing the dragons. No. I've looked back, not just with him, and what I've realized is from a very early age, and this ties into some with the parents too, when I was in ninth grade, the church that I went to they had what they called church retreat and all the families that had kids in the Methodist Youth Fellowship went to Camp Donnelly which is down the Noose River practically to the oceans big summer camp but so like in May on a three-day weekend you know whole families went and there was things like baseball games and volleyball games and contests and the little odd outcasts were not doing those things and not interested in those things and so I'm like in ninth grade and there's a seventh grade boy who went to Colbert and I went to Phillips and we're both we suck at baseball we suck at this we suck at the other things we're kind of interested in turtles so we're walking along the pond watching turtles and stuff and that evening when it was head to the mess hall whatever and have dinner all of a sudden I get this claw on my shoulder and this man is a medical doctor at UNC like a you'd think a respected member of the community and he says I know what you are my son is not like that stay away from him like I didn't know what I was so it was just the very shocking untypical 
adult behavior. But what I, I look back over the years and I realize that the kind of outcasts and losers I'm, I'm empathetic for and I'm giving attention to, but they're also glad to be getting attention. And so someone is stopping by my house. I'm like, I don't even know who you are wanting something that I gave. And then, you know, at the same time, he wanted emotional Oh, you remember him actually support. coming for like a counseling? Well, not even counseling, just to to be with someone, you know. And then I'm sitting there, you know. It's it's very easy to. But he didn't seem mentally ill yet. I didn't think of it in those terms, but you know, I'm always thinking. In those years, I'm always thinking, what if this person is just like me? They're coming to grips with their. They just want someone to talk to. I don't necessarily. It's not like every young weird guy that wanted to hang out with me i'm sitting there thinking oh they just want to get in my pants it's just like oh they're just nobody understands them and you know so i sat there i remember that pamphlet now and i think i must have said some things to him along the lines of well maybe maybe this is your issue you know and then he's showing up with a rape pamphlet See, I never knew he came by your house or i forgot yeah but so you're saying if he came by your house Maybe you asked him, like, leading questions. Leading like, questions. Yeah. But I didn't put my hand on his knee. No. I never knew you'd right. do anything. Yeah. No, like that. I mean, I remember that pamphlet now. That's like one of those that I've blocked off my mind. It sounded like he told his mom this story about how me and you were kind of consorting. And, and maybe it was her idea that we were trying to corrupt him. And she confronted my mom specifically about you, though. She said, why are you letting Emil hang out with this guy, Ron? Obviously, with this, she has this idea he's trying to turn her son out. I remember my mom specifically said back to her, Emil can take care of himself. He knows the difference between, like, right and wrong. He's he's fine. He can do whatever he wants. And she, she kind of clarified, like, you realize Ron is gay. Like, don't you think this is dangerous or something? And my mom was like, no. And so in the phone call, she specifically mentions that one should never grab someone by the shoulders and shake them and tell them that we're all asexual. Did you say that? Not that I remember, yeah. but I could see you and or me philosophically saying that at different times and him blending this into this story. Asexual, I don't know if that's a word... I would have been using at the time. I don't think you were. See, that sounds like a word you would use. That is a word I would use. I've always had a set of rules that I've operated by. My rule was, if I go hang out with some kid and they smoke me up, then I can smoke with them. I'm still not going to be given any hallucinogens to anyone under 21. But that if, was always a hard, fast rule. That was rule. a hard, fast rule. Okay. The point being, when our dude stopped by, he was not coming for that because he could not have gotten that. You know what I'm saying? And I remember thinking, what is Emil's friend that I barely know coming by here? He's looking for something. 
Is he looking for guidance? Is he looking for a sexual experience? He is coming to me for something. And he may not even know. He may not even know. So then I'm asking the questions. 